Our text this morning is Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. Luke 14, 25 through 35. Now great crowds accompanied him and turned and said, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not sit first or does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and he is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who do not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Father, we come before you now and Trust that your word will accomplish the very thing that you determined that it would accomplish in our lives, that it wouldn't return void. Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength to honestly peer into your word this morning, that you might be glorified in our lives, that you might save souls. Lord, I thank you that you've given us a word that is living and active. Father, that it chases us down even to the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Father, I pray that you would expose sin in our lives And then we would turn to Christ and trust in Him. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. About just over 17 years ago uh, was my first time ever climbing onto an airplane. It was a day after being married. And uh, my wife was already a world traveler, and she had been on uh, planes many a times. Uh, But we were climbing aboard a plane to head to Jamaica. This obviously was my first time outside of the country, and uh, I'd probably be pretty embarrassed to watch myself on that flight. I don't think I quit looking out the window uh, the whole time, 
being amazed. And uh, then we landed in Jamaica and we climbed aboard one of the scariest vans slash buses uh, you've ever seen. Uh, I had no idea where we were going, and, but all I know is we were on the wrong side of the road, driving way too fast, uh, over hills, passing vehicles over hills. I thought we were going to die. Uh, but one of the things I noticed, and we noticed, it, as we drove through the countryside and through different towns, uh, we were in this uh, van for probably a couple hours, I noticed that all these homes, all these buildings were partially finished buildings. They were like block structures with rebar coming out the top, but it was like everyone began building and then quit building right before the house was completed. And I was very perplexed and did not understand why this would be. As we uh, talked to uh, folks that lived in Jamaica, we found out that if you finish your home, you have to pay taxes on your home. And if you put windows in or, or finish it off, then your house is completed and you need to pay property taxes, I suppose. And so the majority of people counted the cost and decided the cost was not worth finishing the buildings. The title of the message today is Half-Built Towers amid looming destruction. What Jesus describes in this text, we would do well to pay attention to look around and to see if our Christianity, if our theology actually comes from the Scripture or from a cultural Christianity. A different Jesus with a different calling and I'm afraid that if we had spiritual eyes to look across this landscape of America and American congregations, what we would see is half-built towers with destruction looming in front of them. We live in a culture that wants to get the thing now without making the payment. We go look at cars we can't afford, and there's salesmen saying, you deserve this car, you need this car. And we have the temptation to say, I do need this car. It is what I deserve. I don't need to sit down and look at my budget, see if I can afford it. I can just get it now. This is the culture that we live in. And God's living and active word speaks prophetically right into our lives. 
I will never forget the when we bought our house in Aberdeen, we moved from Columbia to Aberdeen. Our realtor kind of knew our budget, and uh, we wanted to look at some houses, and the thing she said to us is she says, you don't want that house. And I said, well, why is that? And she said, because you need to be able to buy pizza on Friday night with the kids. She's saying, you can't afford it. She was a good realtor protecting young married couple with children saying, you need enough money to have pizza with your children. Jesus is like that. Jesus tells it the way it is on the front end. Jesus did not look to draw people at all costs, to create a big group that looked impressive in the eyes of the world. But Jesus always spoke the truth. And so if you look at your notes, here's what you'll see. This text will call that we sell all that we have, even our life, to gain what we could never afford And under point one, we're going to consider the cost of tuition at the school of Christ. This whole text is about discipleship. What it means to be a disciple is to be a learner of a master. What will it cost to follow behind Christ? To be a follower of Christ? To be a disciple of Christ? What is the tuition payment? If you were going to look at this bill that he gives us to show us what it would cost, and you can see that every point begins with consider. And that's what Christ is calling the crowds to do, calling you to do, to think, to consider, to not be impulsive. And look at how he begins. Look at verse 26. We're going to see the family and friends fee. We're going to see the fact that Christ must have priority over every relationship if you're going to go to the school of Christ, if you're going to be his follower. In verse 25, it says, Now the crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, So let's just stop there. Jesus always had big crowds following him. In a sense, all the other rabbis could say, look at all of his disciples. But when Jesus turned around, he did not see a crowd of disciples. And he wanted the crowds to know who were really his followers who were his disciples. Jesus never allowed false assurance to deceive his hearers. Jesus never 
let people who weren't saved, who weren't following him, to feel good about their position. He loved them too much. This is what he's been doing with the Pharisees, showing them that they are not going to enter the kingdom of God because of their pedigree, because of their list of good works that are not from the heart. They have evil hearts, and they're rejecting the Savior. Jesus was honest with the crowds. Think of modern-day church in evangelical America. Let's get a bunch of disciples. Well, who are disciples? All these people in this big room. Look at what we have to offer you. Look at what our church provides. Look how great this place is. Look at what we can do for your family. And pastors wanting to look successful in the eyes of other pastors. Call this discipleship. Call their congregation disciples. John MacArthur writes... He says the Lord's evangelistic methodology is striking in contrast to that of today's pop church approach. Pastors and evangelists pursuing mass responses, seeking to eliminate barriers and make it as easy as possible for people to respond to the message. Jesus, however, did the opposite. He made extreme exclusive and absolute statements that discourage superficial responders. He said things like, do not think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, Matthew 10, 34. In two brief parables, Jesus likened salvation uh, in God's kingdom to a hidden treasure where a man sells all that he has in order to gain this treasure. So Jesus turns and looks at the crowd and he begins to lay down the cost of walking in his footsteps, being a follower of him. And here's what he says. If, this is a conditional clause, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Don't hear this very often in evangelical calls to follow Christ. This isn't very palatable to the human heart. What does he mean by hate? Certainly, he can't mean that we literally hate our family when we're called to love our enemies, when fulfilling the law is loving God and loving neighbor. What he's doing here is he's using a grammatical device 
In a sense, it's a Semitic idiom. In the Hebrew, uh, Arabic, and Aramaic languages, they would use this grammatical device that uh, would describe loving something or hating something in terms of loving something more than something else. You might say, well, are you sure you're just not making this text seem a little more palatable? I'm sure because the parallel text in Matthew 10, beginning in the verse 34, we get to see the translation of what Jesus meant in this statement. Matthew 10, verse 34, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set man against his father, and daughter against her mother, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And then here's the key, verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. There it is. If you love your wife more than me, you cannot follow me. If you love your father and mother more than me, you're more devoted to them than me, you cannot be my disciple. If you love your children more than me, you cannot be my disciple. And then he says something similar to our text, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So what Jesus is saying is, if I'm not primary in your relationships, if I'm not your number one relationship, if my voice is not the strongest in your life over every other voice, you're not worthy to be my disciple. You cannot follow me. And we could see this in other passages like Genesis 29, where we read Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years when the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Well, hated is loved less than Rachel. So this is what he is getting at. In John 12, 25, Jesus said, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And then he says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. And so the picture here that we see in this text is that Christ must have priority over every single relationship in your life. And you need to ask yourself the question, have you signed up to follow Christ? Is this what you in fact have done? 
In Luke chapter 9, this is not a new thing Christ has said. In verse 57, Luke 9, 57, we read, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus didn't say, great, the crowd is getting bigger. But instead he said this, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. Daryl Bach, a commentator, says, a disciple is a learner, and the primary teacher in life is Jesus. This total loyalty is crucial, given that rejection and persecution that lies ahead. If his followers care more about family than about Jesus, when families are divided under the pressure of persecution, they will choose against Christ. This is what lies behind Jesus' remarks. Discipleship is not possible if Jesus is not the teacher. Here's what he's saying. You cannot be my disciple if your wife is more important to you than Christ. Because if it comes to the point where you need to give your life for Christ and you see that your wife will be left here on earth, if your wife is number one in your life, you'll deny Christ. You'll be a half-built building who you built and you built and you built and you built and it will not be finished. So the first cost is that Christ have priority over every relationship. Now it is true that a person who trusts Christ will begin to love their family more. You'll love your wife more. You'll love your children more. Although it may seem like a renunciation of them or rejection or hate if the family does not share in the same commitment to Christ. And some of you have experienced that. Some of you have family members that are not fully committed to Christ. And although your love for them has grown, your family experiences you as rejecting them in fact, you may be persecuted from within your own home. And so he says, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now hear this. There is no part of your life that does not need to be surrendered to Christ. Family and life goals could master your life 
and more important and be way more important than following Christ. Discipleship requires full surrender to him. Second, look at the life fee. Bearing one's own cross. Look at verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What does it mean to bury or bear your own cross? Your own cross. It means submitting to a godly life and according to his word in the particular circumstances that God has sovereignly put you in. If you seek to follow Christ, you will have your own cross in your commitment to him that Christ says you will bear if you follow me. Let me illustrate this in 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Here's God's will for your life. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What does it mean to bear your cross? It means in every circumstance to see it as the divine and sovereign will of God, to be thankful for the hard times as well as the good times, and to seek to be faithful in that very moment. And it's a cross because this might mean your plans don't come to fruition. It's a death in a sense. In 2 Timothy 3.10, here's how Paul describes it. You, however, have followed my teaching. Now this is Paul speaking to Timothy. My conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived." This is what we're called to. The world's getting worse. The world's getting more hostile to Christ. And Paul says, follow my persecutions. Follow my sufferings. Follow my faith. Walk in the path of Christ. If you desire to live a godly life in Christ, you will be persecuted. You will take up your cross. You will not fit in. And if you fit in, you are not a disciple of Christ. Now, you may go to church. You may even give it church. You may even have said a prayer and invited Jesus into your heart. But if the world can't distinguish you from them, and you are amazed at how you fit in, you are not in the path of Christ. Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. 
And so the cost is one's own life. Third, look at the lordship fee. And we're actually going to skip down to uh, verse 33. What we've seen so far is we've seen, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his relationships, whoever does not bear his own cross, and now we get, if any of you does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. What does he mean when he says, renounce all that you have? Seeing Christ for who he truly is changes the entire way we view our lives. Here's how Paul said it, Philippians 3.3. Paul says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. For I myself have reason for confidence in, his, in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, of Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor to the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Savior. For, the, for His sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes, or that which depends on faith. Here's what he's saying. If you want to look at worldly standards, my life was better than any of yours. But I count that rubbish. The word means manure. He says, I count all that. Everything I used to live for, I chalk it up on one side in comparison to the worth of knowing Christ and I count this loss. This used to be everything and now I look at it and I say it's loss. In Luke 18, we have this sad story of the rich young ruler in verse 22 after the rich young ruler said yeah i've kept the last you know four of the uh commandments basically five through nine i've kept them i've done those since my youth when jesus heard this he said to him one thing you still lack sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me but when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for the camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He was sad because he heard clearly the cost of following Jesus. And rather than seeing 
this as manure. He saw his money as primary in his life. You see, he didn't recognize that it wasn't his money. He didn't recognize that every good and perfect gift is from the Father above. He forgot that he was a steward who was going to give an account. MacArthur says of the rich young ruler, it was his unwillingness to surrender his possessions that caused the rich young ruler to turn away from Christ and be eternally lost. Jesus is not advocating socialism that we just give all of our money away or getting rid of everything and living a life of poverty. His point is that those who would be his disciples must recognize they are stewards of everything and owners of nothing. And if the Lord asked them to give uh, up all, they would be willing because loving obedience is their highest duty and joy. In the parable in Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. This is what it's like. A true disciple realizes the value of Christ and says, oh, in my joy, I'll sell it all to have that. And when Jesus looks back at the crowds, He's saying, don't be fooled. In fact, when Jesus is there in Jerusalem, right before his ascension, you know, you know how many people were there? You know how many people gathered in Jerusalem after his ascension? 120 people. A lot of crowds following him, very few disciples. Because to be a part of that 120 surely meant persecution surely meant being disowned from families and maybe even spouses and children. And Jesus is clearly teaching us the cost of following him. Let me put it to you this way. Whoever would follow me, Jesus, is... is, is, Jesus is saying, whoever would follow me must hate the idolatrous relationship that you've had with your family, friends, co-workers, with your possessions, with your career, with your body, with your mind, with your desires, with your actions, with animals, with anything else in all creation. You were made to worship God alone. Jesus is not a helpful addition you add to your life. This is the key. This is what American Christianity says. You need Jesus. You just add him to your life and all your dreams will come true. You will get it. You need him. He'll just make your life so much better. But he's not something you just add into your life. But in fact, he asks for your life. He's not merely a helpful guide to your life. He is not merely a good example for your life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. To follow Jesus means to die to following your hopes and your dreams. 
Let me say that again. To follow Jesus means to die to following your hopes and your dreams and your plans. It means to begin to pray like Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what it means to follow Christ. To say, I surrender it. I have all these plans. I have all these desires. But you have bought me. You own me. I surrender it up to you. I believe that although I surrender up the thing I used to love, I believe that life is the reward. Because he who loses his life will gain it. But he who seeks to save his life will lose it. Why would you want to follow your plans? Let me just ask the question. Why do you want to follow your dreams and your plans? Why do you want to follow your heart? The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You might be saying, are you saying that Jesus wants us to give up our plans? Well, listen to James 4.13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we're going to go do such and such and such and such in a town and spend a year there and trade there and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time, then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. And as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. You realize that? Christianity in our culture is come to Jesus. He'll make your dreams come true. And James says, that's evil. That's boasting. That's presumptuous. That's living like an owner rather than a redeemed slave of Christ. Think of the verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not a promise that God will help us accomplish our dreams and aspirations. But if we read it in the context of Philippians 4, it means that God will give us the strength to suffer on earth for the name of Christ and remain faithful. Let me read it for you, Philippians 4.10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You indeed were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned that in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see what he's saying there? He says, I can endure the good circumstances and the bad circumstances and I can do it to the glory of God. Through Christ who strengthens me. In fact, the call to Paul's, Paul's ministry call, Acts 9.15. 
the Lord said to Ananias to go talk to Paul and tell him this, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings of Israel. For I will show, show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. How do you like that call to ministry? He's my chosen instrument. Do you want to be an instrument of Christ? Or do you want to be a king of your own life? A king of your own plans? A king of your own desires? Or do you want to be an instrument for Christ? Chosen by God to bring the name of Christ to the Gentiles. Go tell him how much he must suffer for my namesake. You think Paul is regretting his life now that he's passed into eternity? All that suffering has now mounted up to an eternal weight of glory beyond comprehension? Paul was no fool. Would Paul ever say, just think about this. Let me ask you, would Paul ever say, you need Jesus. He'll make all your plans for your business thrive. He'll give you amazing vacations. Nothing like that would come from the word of God. Would come from this. No one would ever say, hey, the plans I have for my life is to be an instrument for someone else and to suffer greatly in the process. And yet Jesus is honest. And he says, if you want to follow me, count the cost. And this is quickly becoming a two-part sermon, I see. Next week, we're going to see the illustration, the two parables that Jesus gives. We're going to see how he says how foolish it is to begin building without counting the cost. We're going to consider if we can afford to follow Christ. Everyone who marks themselves out saying, I'm going to follow him, needs to understand what they're saying, what Christ calls for in their life. Now, does any of us do this perfect? No. But the true believer who's been born again, who has the Holy Spirit in their heart, that is their desire. Their desire is to lift up empty hands and say, Lord, whatever your will be for my family, for my possessions, for my life, I want to seek your will. I want your will to be done because this is the heart of the prayer of the believer. This is how Jesus taught us to pray. And my prayer is, is you're not sitting here saying, oh man, I thought I wanted to follow him, but now I'm like the rich young ruler who is really bummed out because I love my stuff. Don't be a fool. This world is passing away. Our life is but a mist. Throw yourself upon Christ. Live for Him. Be salty, useful, 
suffering followers of Christ that can love and pray for those who persecute us. The question is, have you literally looked at what Christ has called every believer to? And will you pray in your heart? Will you say, God, you have it. You're worthy of my life. You died in my place. Though you were rich, you became poor. That I might become rich. Will you throw yourself on him? And do whatever he asks you to do. Go wherever he asks you to go. Surrender whatever he asks you to surrender. And we're going to need each other. We're going to need encouragement. Accountability. Paul was writing to Timothy saying, continue in what you have learned, what your grandmother has taught you. He tells Timothy, I fought the fight of faith. I'm at the end of my life. He knew he was about to die for the sake of Christ. And he's telling Timothy to fight and we need encouragement. We need accountability You need friends in your life where you're talking about these things. Are you a steward in every aspect of your life? Your time, your money, your relationships. Are they for you or are they for God? Father, I thank you that we can have a relationship with you. Not by works, not by being good enough but by looking to your perfect work that you did for us. The perfect life you lived, the work you did on the cross where you bore the wrath for our sins. Father, I pray that no one here would swing out into eternity on the flimsy rope of I hope I lived a good life, but that everyone here would recognize that we would stack up all of our goodness and call it rubbish and see our only hope in Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be true, authentic followers that seeks to put to death our own life, seeks to put to death sin and is longing to become more and more like Christ. Father, we thank you that you gave us the promise that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.